Okay. All right. We're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. It came to my attention after talking with the occult rejects. He goes by the walrus or also Jacob Backus, but he's uh, done a conversation about some a figure that I'm interested in, John D. He was the 16th century, kind of really a magus, kind of a giant in that field. And I was curious about Enochian magic myself that subject so i'm delighted to have him he, he's read a lot of books about the subject so hopefully he can kind of guide us through the life of john d so jacob are you there uh yeah i'm here awesome well thanks for agreeing to the interview for people who may not be familiar with you can you talk a little bit about your background and how you became interested in this particular subject um well i first learned about him quote about 25 years ago when i was 18 when I first heard about Enochian magic, and uh, and that's why most people know of him these days, which is kind of a shame because John Dee's possibly one of the most interesting figures in history, but particularly like in the Anglosphere, American English history. Right. So, uh, and what makes him that inter- fascinating? I mean, he. He was had the largest library in Europe at one point, right? Uh, yes, uh, and that was it was around the time uh, in England. It was before Queen Elizabeth took the throne, and uh, uh, what was it? Late fifteen hundreds, I guess. And he was uh, he had studied. He was one of the, he was. Probably the original English Renaissance man. He had studied. Uh, he was uh, one of the first fellows at the Trinity College in uh, in Cambridge when he was sixteen, fifteen. Wow. Yeah, and uh, he had studied in various schools on the continent and the Netherlands and Belgium and France. Right, he had been to University of Paris uh, teaching geometry, right? So he, yes, when he was sixteen, right, well, <laughs> he, so he started out fast, right? Yep, yep, fast and uh, and the uh, he was when he was what I think fifteen, fifteen or sixteen around the same time. He because uh, when he first started as a uh, yeah, because he was, he was lecturing on Euclidean geometry in Paris at fifteen, and he went back to back to England and uh, uh, became one of the first fellows, one of the original fellows of Trinity College at Cambridge. Right, and uh, he was that was it. So at sixteen, he was doing a. Uh, he might have still been fifteen, actually. Uh, he was doing a uh, presentation, and he learned about a lot about optics. And he was a early pioneer in optics, and had uh, done this crazy like light show that went with the story and stuff. And uh, that's when he first got the tag as a magician. Uh, that would follow him throughout his life, and. They still had witch hunts in those days. <laughs> right. It wasn't a positive thing to be related or being called a magician at that time, right? No, definitely not. Now, at the same time, he was a very devout Christian. 
Catholic originally. He was actually uh, one of the proponents of... Because in his lifetime, particularly in his younger days before Elizabeth took the throne, that was when the Catholics and the Protestants were uh, kind of fighting for control over England. Right. And... So he actually got thrown in the Tower of London for a while for being Catholic as well. <laughs> oh, interesting. Because he, he got busted for, like, he was doing horoscopes for the Queen and Elizabeth before she was Queen. And that yes. got him in trouble, right? Yes, for Queen Mary, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary. And then, uh, as she's known now, and uh, and for Elizabeth before she took the throne, he was, yeah. And he got thrown in the Tower of London for that for a while, too. <laughs> yeah, but one of the interesting aspects is that he went in front of the, the notorious Star Chamber, right? So he was he was a contemporary of all these kind of interesting figures at that time, right? Sir Francis Bacon. Yeah, actually, him and Bacon were primary rivals, as it were. They uh, would usually end up on opposite political sides in the English... Uh, and they were probably kind of the masterminds behind their their uh, their political figures, you know. Like if uh, whoever John D would back, Bacon was usually on the opposite end of that. And they were, I think. I think Bacon was a little bit younger. Like D was more well established by that time. Gotcha. But uh, but yeah, he was definitely contemporary. Because Bacon kind of straddles between John D. and Shakespeare, which there's all kinds of mysteries about Shakespeare. A lot of people think he didn't really even write the works and stuff. Yeah, I actually, the, I'm willing to entertain that thought because there's so little known about this actual, so little information known about this actual person, Shakespeare. Right. You know, not too many pictures. And if you overlay what is it, uh, Manly P. Hall's book, Secret Teaching of All Ages, there's a picture of, of Bacon that looks exactly, if you overlay it with Shakespeare, it's a carbon copy, actually. Have you ever yeah. seen that? Yes, I have. And the other the other problems with the Shakespeare mythos is like, how does this person have a library? How does he have access to all this information and knowledge? And that's really like kind of definitive. It's like you would have to have access to all of this information to actually make those those plays and, and that much genius in that short of time. It's hard. It's, it's unusual. Yep. And there's two big schools of thought on that actually, which this could be a whole another episode we could talk about at some point. But, uh, some people think that Shakespeare was really Francis Bacon or Francis Bacon actually wrote the Shakespeare plays. Uh, more likely to me one that I heard was that Shakespeare was actually a student of John D and that's why there's no real record of his schooling and everything because it was kind of a right. he, kind of a secret society, probably one of the earliest secret societies in uh, was John D's school there that, of students that he was teaching and Shakespeare was probably his prized student. That one seems to make the most sense to me, especially well, wasn't, wasn't Bacon also a head of a secret society or like a secret group? It was, um, uh, Invisible College or something? Uh, yes, I believe so. And eventually those two streams would kind of marry. But um, And it might have even been like a, like a uh, 
false opposition where they claim both sides. That's quite possible, too. And they were probably more like friendly rivals than actual rival rivals, but they were the two greatest minds in England at the time, so they were definitely... Right. Yeah, they knew each other, were operating similar circles, things like that, yeah. But yeah. D, I mean, what's the what's the story with D and the New World? Like, wasn't he instrumental in in kind of uh, the increase? The, I mean, he's, he coined the term British Empire, right? Yes, he did coin the term British Empire, and this is actually I was this is actually exactly what I was watching before uh, before this to brush up on. Uh, so, because uh, Queen Elizabeth was a Tudor, and the Tudors are Welsh. And the story goes, when King Arthur died, it was prophesied that uh, the British Empire would begin when the Welsh took the throne again. So when Queen Elizabeth came in, that ushered in. But this is according to John Dee. He wrote it in a book that was lost until 1977 called The Limits of the British Empire. Yeah. And that's actually some very interesting stuff because John D is claiming at that time that uh, King Arthur not only ruled England or Great Britain, but also Ireland, Iceland, Greenland, parts of great parts of Europe and the France and stuff, hmm. and probably the, the Low Countries, Belgium and Belgium and the, the Netherlands. And, uh, and parts of America, mostly like uh, Labrador and Canada kind of area. But, uh, and then he lists several other, this is kind of how they establish their, this is while uh, Britain establishes their claim in America is essentially through John Dee's work in the limits of the British Empire. Yeah, so like everybody who's in the New World has some kind of like past genealogy going, not not physical, but ideological back to D, right? So we're all here in the New World in part because of D's expansionism. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And D, like later in life when he was traveling through uh, all the various royal courts, particularly in Germany, because he spent a lot of time in Germany, uh, He, uh, his teachings there and his workings on alchemy and especially the Christianized religion is probably what later became the Rosicrucian order, which started in Germany. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't there some claim that he was a Rosicrucian, but it couldn't be verified. I think it would be something like that. Well, the Rosicrucians didn't really pop up as a, as a uh, known thing until, after he was after he had died, gotcha. But it was he was probably instrumental in the teach spreading the teachings that became because he was he was very heavily into hermetic philosophy from a Christian perspective because he was devoutly Christian, and uh, that's pretty much Rosicrucianism in a nutshell, you know. Right. Oh. And he added in the alchemy, and that's pretty much. I mean, he was actually part of the Renaissance, so he was in contact with other Renaissance. I think it was uh, Marsilio Ficino or something like that. If you do, you remember his name? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. 
So he was kind of influenced by that. So it came out of the Florentine era of, you know, just this mass, just incredible creation of all these new ideas, art and stuff like that. So he was kind of part of that, or D was. D was pretty much the the one who brought the Renaissance to England. Gotcha, yeah. For the most part. And he kind of, uh, I mean, he was he was tempted to just increase his knowledge. And one of the interesting aspects of D is that he's this devout Christian who gets involved in scrying or or talking to entities, right? Yes. And from our current perspective, that sounds weird that he would be really into science and devoutly Christian and into these sorcery stuff. But in his time, especially to him, he uh, there was no divisions of knowledge. There was in uh, he actually wrote a book called uh, uh, Monad Hieroglyphicus, I believe is the name of it. Monus Hieroglyphica, right? Monus Hieroglyphica. I got it backwards, but <laughs> but he uh, he wrote that, and basically. It's a it's about a glyph that he was basically his uh, shorthand for the entire universe, where it just talks about the uh, the unity of all knowledge. So that was his, uh, and uh, that's why. So yeah, he lived at Mort Lake and had the biggest uh, library in England for sure at the time. Right, that's just outside of downtown London, right? So he's in London. It's on the Thames, yeah. So. Yeah, and uh, t- can you talk about how he got into this whole scrying and what, what he did, what the techniques he used to uh, communicate with these beings or entities or whatever? Yeah, um, so probably what happened as he's studying in all these places throughout the continent and everything, he probably came across quite a few of the uh, medieval grimoires, I would imagine. And uh, so, like I said, towards later in life, well, not too late in his life, but fairly late, probably about 50 or so, he uh, got interested in wanting to contact the angels. And uh, he had tried a few different squires that didn't really work out up until the time Edward Kelly appeared. And then it was either the day before, I think it was the day before Edward Kelly got there, he said an angel had left a, uh, it's a polished obsidian mirror in his window that he called the shoe stone that they used to scry. And so when Kelly came, like I said, it was either... I can't remember if it was the day before Kelly showed up or the Kelly showed up, they did the ritual, and the next day the shoe stone stood up. It was, it was one of the two. Hmm. And uh, that was instrumental in them contacting. So at first they contacted, I believe it was the Archangel Uriel. Mm-hmm. And uh, although it's very questionable if that's actually who he contacted because right. Right. that's the question. Some people are saying, is he talking to angels or is he talking to other uh, non-angelic entities? Right. Right. 
And the thing about a Nokia Magic, like these days, it's connected to a lot of things within the UFO sphere. Interesting. And uh, so, from our modern, and that, uh, that's probably largely because of Crawley, because that's basically looking at it from a uh, modern materialist perspective. Well, in John D's time, he was looking at it from a Christian idealist per- perspective. Right, and he was like preparing himself to scribe by fasting, prayer. So it's not like he was going into that, even though the Bible, the Old Testament, you know, prohibits this type of behavior. But he was thinking of it as a Christian, right? Yes. Well, and and uh, he was not scrying. That's what. Kelly was doing. I mean, gotcha. Kelly was doing. Well, can you talk about what they did to do it? Like what their technique was, how they would arrange it. Right. So the uh, the records are a little murky because when he was writing it down, you probably didn't admit that you had these uh, that you had these grimoires. <laughs> so, but uh, they did a ritual when Aunt Kelly showed up to contact the Archangel. I think it was Archangel Uriel. And, uh, but the way it went is that Kelly would look into, or one of them would look into the shoe stone in a hat, and then somebody would record what he was seeing, right? Wasn't yes. that the technique? John D would do the ritual that would summon the, the entities. I'll just put it that way for, and, uh, right, that would summon them, and then Kelly would look into the shoe stone inside the hat. And then it later got more complex as they went. They gave them a more, more and more advanced uh, instructions on how to contact them better and stuff. But because they uh, moved into a board, right? They got a secret language, the Enochian language, and then yeah. they had it in a board. And then, so later things it's, it's, it's kind of important to establish because these modern day magicians are using that same technique. Right? Exactly. Because he had the, uh, there's like the table that they put it on right. that uh, has the, these tables of uh, Enochian figures from which are derived the names of the various Enochian kings and governors. and Right. Uh, the reason I'm trying to get that out is because Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon at the foundation of the Mormon faith did the same thing. They were practicing John D's magic. Yes. The same manner. They're looking in the hat. Rigdon was the guy, or one of them was staring in and the other was writing it down. And then Crowley and his sidekick, uh, Newberg, did the same thing, taking John D's books into the Algerian desert. And then the same thing happened with uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons. And they yep. got a working. They brought the Enochian stuff. So, and that's, that's just the ones that are. We know. Right. That we know of, well, right. yeah, that that's that's a uh, common knowledge. I'll put it More that way. <laughs> right. Right. Well said. Because the Golden Dawn, that was the Enochian was a big part of their system. That's how Crowley learned it. I don't know. And that was part of the uh, English underground. Now I'm not sure if they got that from the Rosicrucians in Germany, right. or because the Golden Dawn was founded from contact between uh, people in England and uh, 
McGregor, Mathers, and all them. Right. right. And uh, and the uh, Rosicrucian Order in Germany, which they're kind of vague about, of course. But uh, right. So this this is now a part of Western magical esotericism. Is the D techniques, the Enochian callings and stuff like that. Like Crowley read out all the ethers and stuff like that. There's there's records of... Right, so they were transferring through an aether. Can you describe, or do you know the meaning of an aether as opposed to like, it doesn't mean the same as dimension, does it? Or does it? Do you know? Um, Because there's like 24 aethers, right? Yeah, it, it's... The technical definition of dimension is definitely not doesn't mean that mm-hmm. but the kind of popular not real definition of dimension when people say oh from another dimension like meaning like a uh, parallel world isn't the exact word but another another realm maybe another realm yeah another realm is or plane of existence is how i like to describe them gotcha. and uh basically the way the enochian system works is that uh the ethers are kind of like layers of an onion. And uh, so when you travel through one, and then you're slowly getting closer towards the great unity of everything. Gotcha. And so, I mean, this kind of like him, and Kelly wasn't exactly as devout a Christian as D, correct? No, Kelly was Kelly was an interesting figure in and of himself. And it's really interesting because in English esotericism, which we all speak English, so that's what we're more familiar with, it's mostly about D and Kelly was just the scryer. But through through their work all throughout the continent, Kelly is actually the more popular figure. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But he's a really interesting guy. Edward Kelly was probably not his real name, but we don't know who he really was. <laughs> and uh, when he first went to D, he always wore a hat because his ears were cut off, which was a common punishment for thieves in those days. And a lot of people like to think that, like, if Edward Kelly, that, that Edward Kelly was. Uh, just making it up. But if you look at the like the Enochian language system, it has its own structure that's like, like linguists look at it and like, wow, this is an actual really developed structure that isn't related to any other language on earth. Right. So, yeah, it's totally unique. Yeah. But and it Kelly- has its own grammar and its own structure and everything. So Kelly thought he could had the he was an alchemist who thought he had the philosopher's stone too, right? So he made some pretty bold claims. Yes, and that's actually why he uh is the more popular guy in uh in European or continental esotericism. And uh that's basically when they were traveling around, they were contacting the angels, uh or quote unquote angels, the Enochian Entities would be the best way to describe them. I wouldn't call them angels. And later, D's like, I don't think these are really angels. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, maybe we can talk about his travels on the continent. I mean, because he was with Kelly 
taking these angels, but they were telling him to do stuff, and so-called angels, I should say, right? Yeah, yeah, so-called, and they were telling him a lot of things. Like uh, basically, they were telling him that uh, they like they went to the court of Rudolph the first in Germany, mm-hmm. and. The idea was that Elizabeth, who was unmarried at the time, and Rudolph were going to get the angels were telling them that Elizabeth would marry Rudolph and they would create the first Hermetic Empire, which obviously did not come to pass. <laughs> and uh, Rudolph had actually, D had already left for a little while and went back to England. Kelly was still in the court of Rudolph and got locked in a tower that, uh, because he said he had the philosopher's stone and there is some indication that he did have the philosopher's stone actually. And that was his claim to fame when he met D too, was that he had the philosopher's stone. He had this red powder that was supposed to be the philosopher's stone. Um, yeah. Cause they were all trying to transmute, materials back then that was part of the alchemical process yeah. right which became a kind of a spiritual process after they figured out they couldn't do it well that's uh like people think it's turning base metal into gold but that's just one aspect of it it's transmutation of physical substance basically from one thing into another right. And that operates through spiritual principles. So then, like, the idea behind it is that you could only... uh, That's why it's called the Philosopher's Stone, because it's not just a physical process. It's while you're doing the physical processes. There's also internal processes within yourself that are purifying you as you're purifying the substance. And uh, so it's kind of both. And nowadays, people tend to focus more on the the uh, spiritual alchemy, the more internal aspects of it, mm-hmm. because that's probably more useful. Well, if you could actually figure out how to transmutate one thing into another, <laughs> that would be pretty useful as well. Very useful, but <laughs> but but the the biggest focus within alchemy circles generally is. Uh, on the spiritual processes these days. Right. So, what I mean, eventually his communication with these angels led to wife swapping, or the, the so-called angels, I should say. Yeah, that was actually early on. Oh, okay. When, yeah, when they were still at Mortlake in the early processes. That was pretty, and that's kind of some of the interesting stuff, too, because uh, you well, can that, read all their notes about it because it's published. John D. Uh, what passed between John D. Uh, I forget the exact title of it, but let's see. I think it's one is uh, uh, what's the name? True and faithful relation of what That's passed it. for many years between Doctor John D. and some spirits. So That's they don't it. even call it angels either; they just call it spirits. And that was John name. D.'s title. So <laughs> yeah, because when he was putting it together, that was later, and he was like. Yeah, I don't know if those are actually uh, angels. 
Well, <laughs> so no angel would. I've never heard of angels and wife wife swapping in the same sentence, but I've heard of demons, you know, or evil spirits. Right. Like and when you when you're reading the uh, the stuff, like, so obviously it didn't all come from Kelly, or Kelly is a crazy genius that you know never got recognized to be able to, off the top of his head, create this incredibly. Uh, elaborate, fully uh, fully functional language that has its completely own system of uh, of everything. Right. And, uh, so, but, I mean, yeah. but like with the wife swapping thing, because the thing was that uh, John D, even though he was older, but he had a, a hot young wife. And uh, Edward Kelly's wife was uh, kind of a large, loud, annoying woman <laughs> from the stories. <laughs> and supposedly the spirits told them that, or, or I'll put it this way, Kelly told Dee that, the, that right. the spirits told him right. that, oh, they need to share everything, you know, in order to form one unit. And the best way they could do that is if they each slept with each other's wives. And so, the night they're supposed to do it, Kelly had no problem. <laughs> that wasn't but D, exactly an equal transaction, right? Right. But D was completely unable to perform his part. <laughs> I, interesting. And uh, they ended up praying all night. <laughs> or he did, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, I mean, much to Kelly's wife's dismay, as a matter of fact, she was apparently looking forward to it. So. <laughs> Interesting. So there's a lot. I mean, there's so much writing about D. I mean, he left all kinds of published works, but he died in. Didn't he? Wasn't there a story of D confronting or being confronted by the devil in Manchester? Have you heard that? Um, I have heard that a little bit. I'm not that familiar with it, but I just heard that there was like some famous. Confrontation between D and the devil in Manchester. I don't know. Hmm. I actually have to look into that one. That's that's the thing about John D is that, like I said, I first heard about him twenty five years ago because of Nokia Magic, and just the more you learn about him, there's just never a shortage. Like everything that has he's he's a probably the most interesting historical figure ever. <laughs> he had a hand in pretty much everything in the modern world. As uh, my late friend Tracy Twyman used to say, it's John D's world. You're just living in it. <laughs> right. Interesting. And also, like, there's a kind of a thing of where they were also raising spirits, too, right? I think there's a kind of somewhat infamous picture of them, of Dean Kelly sitting inside a magic circle, Raising spirits. Have you ever heard anything like that? Well, I mean, that's what a Nokia magic is. Okay. Like raising the spirits. And um, so that's what uh, Crawley was practicing. And he was contacting Lamb. That is looks just like one of the greys, except without the black things on the eyes. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Before all that was happening. And then... Then uh, that's and it was an Nokia magic that uh, 
that uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons were performing in the Babylon ritual. That was an Enochian ritual. Right. And that pretty much ushered in the UFO age. So. Yeah, what, it was 1948 when they were doing that or something like that? 47? 47, I think. Right, so he he was... They did that ritual. Then Hubbard created Dianetics 48 and 50. It was Scientology. I think the story of D in it was in Cheltenham School's library. He supposedly conjured Satan. And you can find the table in the audit room uh, where there's a burn mark allegedly made by one of the hoops of the devil. See, and that's... Uh, okay, I do, I do know what you're talking about now. And that was probably more of a smear campaign right. against him because that was... During a period of, I think that was around the time he was backing uh, Queen Mary. And that was a very tumultuous point in English history. And uh, so. Have you ever seen the picture of D? It's a, it's a, it's a painting of him in front of Queen Elizabeth and he's performing an experiment or a ritual. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Yeah, very familiar with that one. Can you talk? Do you know much about that story or the story behind it? Well, he was Elizabeth's uh, primary advisor. He was her court philosopher, was his official title. Although he performed astrology for her, he, uh, which he'd been doing since before she was queen and even got locked in the Tower of London for it <laughs> for a while. <laughs> he, uh, but he was her closest advisor. He was also one of the first spies and secret agents because when him him and Kelly were going around the continent, traveling to all these different, the court of Rudolph, uh, for a while they were in uh, Isabella and Ferdinand, Spain, I believe. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Would have been. But they were in Spain for a while. They were in France, all over the place. And... Uh, like John D was the original 007. That's where 007 comes from. Is he used to sign his correspondences to Queen Elizabeth with 007. So, and he was uh, he obviously he didn't invent cryptography, but he did a lot of work in cryptography at the time, and uh, invented all kinds of crazy ciphers that some of them they still use today. And he was. Really instrumental in steganography, if you know what that is. No, d- define that. Right, steganography, like cryptography, is where there's a message and it's encoded, but you can tell there's a message that's encoded. Steganography is where the message is in plain sight, but nobody would even realize it's a message unless you know what it means, and then it's speaking loud and clear to you. It's like a message within a message, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah. So, like, if you know what they're talking about, you'll see it right away. But otherwise, you won't even notice that there's something there. So, right. And didn't, didn't, uh, D have something to do with, like, involvement with the Spanish Armada not being successful? Or do you know, are you familiar with that story? Yes. Uh, very, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, can you elaborate on it? Yeah. Um, and that was through an Enochian magic ritual. 
I'll say allegedly, but uh, I have reasons to believe that that, that is accurate. But uh, he, uh, and it's it's immortalized in Shakespeare's The Tempest, which is one of the reasons. As a matter of fact, uh, a really, if you're interested in the non-Enochian magic stuff about John D. There's a guy named James Allen Egan mm-hmm. who uh, he actually runs the uh, Tower Museum of Newport, Rhode Island. Interesting. Which he says was designed by John D. And that's that's some really interesting stuff too. But uh, he actually uh, wrote a book called uh, How John D. and Shakespeare co-authored The Tempest, or something along that oh, line. Oh, interesting, Yeah, he, he's quite a prolific writer. And I highly recommend them to anybody interested in this type of thing. Gotcha. But, uh... Oh, shut up, Doug, you're in the RX Discord? <laughs> That's, uh... Very familiar with the RX guys. Everybody, gotcha. I stopped using tell, Discord a while ago. But tell me like, the story. Tell me the story of D and uh, Spanish the Spanish Armada. Yeah, well, so you can uh, talk about the Tempest too. Whatever you want. Well, it's the same story. Okay. So uh, the Spanish Armada, which was the biggest naval fleet at the time, and they dominated the seas of the world. And there's a big, uh, big thing between. They pretty much had dominated the British Navy up until that point. And they were all set to have a big, giant showdown where the Spanish Armada was just going to wipe out the British Navy completely. And as uh, right in the, what do they call it, the Irish Sea that's in between uh, England and Ireland. And so they were right off the coast there. And because uh, the majority of the British Navy was in port there and the... Uh, Spanish Armada was just going to come swoop in and tear it apart. And the night before that happened, allegedly, Dee performed a particular ritual. And a giant storm appears and sinks the majority of the Spanish Armada. And so then the British Navy easily defeated the Spanish Armada. And that's why there's a that's why a, the British Empire happened because the armada went down in size right and then the english grew correct the english because it only sank the spanish ships and the uh british ships and somehow managed to escape it without any casualties and so what was left of the spanish armada was easily easily defeated by the british navy and uh that was how the British Empire really became a big thing. How, right? I mean, and there was the contest for the New World was taking place there, so it opened up a lot of routes for England. So there's a lot of consequences for after the Spanish Armada pretty much failed to invade England, which is pretty bold. Um, yep. We are at 40 minutes. Is I have another conversation I've got to do here pretty soon. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed? Or do you want to talk to people about social media? Where people can um, contact you if you're interested. If they're interested. Yeah. Um, 
I've been doing a lot of what well, you've actually been on NY Patriot and right. the, the Ecole Rejects. I've been working with them quite a bit recently. And then I have my own show. Which What's is, the name of that? That's called the Friend Report. Friend Report, F-R-E-N-R-E-P-O-R-T. And we're on uh, D-Live and Trovo. We do a show five nights a week. Nice. How's D-Live working out for you? Um, It's pretty good now. What was wrong with it? Uh, well, after January 6th, we talk about a lot of political stuff, too. Gotcha. And after January 6th, they had demonetized everybody. So that's how we ended up on starting on Trovo. But I just kind of restreamed both. And, uh, but now they've remonetized, so everything is interesting. That's, I got punted off of YouTube after January 6th, so. Yeah, I, uh, stopped streaming on YouTube right around January 6th, and I just prohibited all my videos so they didn't kick me off, but. (laughs) I just use it as like a repository. I don't even care if they got rid of it. Nice stream. I just use it, and then I can. I got copies of everything. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that was a great conversation. Uh, the name again is Jacob Backus or the Walrus, and you can. Be, it's the Friend Report. You said yes. F R E N. Yes. Gotcha. The Friend Report, and we talked about John D, the original 007. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. All right. Take care.